This is episode number 491 with Virle van Leemput, Managing Director and Head of Data Science at Analytic Health. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a Chief Data Scientist and best-selling author on Deep Learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I am absolutely delighted to have Virla as my guest on the program today. Hailing from the Netherlands, Virla has held a number of data science leadership roles at Dutch companies. She now serves as Managing Director and Head of Data Science at Analytic Health, a London-based firm that builds data-centric software for the healthcare industry. On the side, Virla's an impressive podium-level weightlifter on the Dutch national stage. Beyond bonding over powerlifting, in today's episode, Virla details for me how R is not only an option for production software, but may in fact be the best production option for you if data or data models are central to your application. Specifically, Virla runs down for us her favorite R tools for data gathering, model development, and deployment into production systems. Today's episode will primarily be of interest to technical professionals like data scientists and software developers, but we did our best to break down the technical concepts and we do have a lot of laughs in the episode, which could make it appealing to anyone who enjoys a good giggle. All right, you ready for another awesome episode? Let's go. Virla, welcome to the program. I'm so excited to have you on. Where in the world are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Leiden in the Netherlands. It's a uh, bit below Amsterdam. Yeah, we need to know. Everyone wants to know, how is that in relation to Amsterdam? <laughs> Amsterdam is the only place in the Netherlands, apparently. Um, is there a really good football team in Leiden? I think there is. I feel like, a, have I heard about it in that context? I wouldn't know. They most of the time do uh, hockey here. So. Oh, no kidding. Did you ever play hockey? Yeah, in, this, in this town, at least. No, I don't. I don't play hockey. No, you don't. I grew up in Canada, so I must play hockey. It's a part of growing up there. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, so, well, I guess we won't have ice hockey to talk about, but we do have powerlifting. So that's kind of how you originally came to my attention. So because we're both data scientists, we're in each other's LinkedIn network, however that happened. And then uh, I think you commented on a post. So uh, we're recording at the beginning of July and about a month ago, actually, I think it was exactly six weeks ago because I have six week weightlifting cycles. And yesterday I again had a, a one rep max for my deadlift. So I think six weeks ago, I posted my all time deadlift PR, which was 405 pounds. And um, probably after some in initial confusion, confusion about kilos and pounds, you commented on the LinkedIn post. Uh, I can't remember what you said, but then it, oh yeah, you said something about, have you ever thought about competing? And I said, well, I, I've, done, I've done an Olympic weightlifting competition. I've never done powerlifting and I'm definitely interested. Then I was like, well, why would somebody ask this? Virla, do you do powerlifting? And you said, of course. <laughs> yes, I am a powerlifter. 
And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I participated in the Dutch Nationals powerlifting. No way. Yes, I uh, came in second. So I'm vice champion wow. in my weight class. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> that's incredible. Um, this is really exciting. I didn't know that you were that into it. So, okay. Yes. So we should let the audience know exactly what powerlifting is. So I think there's always three movements in a traditional powerlifting competition, right? Yeah, there's three movements. It's the squat, it's the bench press, and it's the deadlift. And those nice. three, you need to get the highest weight. And combined, it's your total. And the total determines um, your ranking, basically. Yes, yeah, so you just add up across the three. Back squat, so you've got a barbell on your back. You squat to below parallel, and then back Below up. Parallel, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, deadlift is the one press. of those. The, oh yeah, bench press. So is that the order? Is it always in the same order in a competition? You always yes. do yes. back squat, then bench press. Bench press, I think a lot of people know that one. You, you're laying on a bench <laughs> horizontally. <laughs> and you press the weight, yeah. yeah Important thing though, weight. in powerlifting, you need to pass at the chest. So it's not like touch and go, which you see normally in the gym oh. happen, but it's a pass bench press even. You have How to wait you... for the judges to say, okay, press. Oh, <laughs> and then you really? Can go. Oh, jeez, yeah. that makes it a lot tougher. Definitely. Um, I've got a really bouncy rib cage. That's my key to bench press success. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> really bounce it off of there. What could go no, wrong? You really need to pause. <laughs> Bouncing is not It's really pausing. <laughs> Just drop it and uh, catch it on the way back up. Um, <laughs> and then the third movement is the deadlift, which, so that's the video that I posted um, six weeks ago, a time of recording. And so that is, it's kind of this, the simplest idea. You've got a barbell on the ground and you need to lift it up. You need to stand up straight, shoulders back. Um, yes. And of the of the three movements, that's the one that typically people can lift the most of. So, um, same for me. Yeah. It would be surprising if it was otherwise. You bench if you benched more than you. Uh, Ooh, that would be epic. <laughs> if I benched exactly. more than my deadlift, I would be very, very good. <laughs> and that's how you become the second uh, most powerful power lifter uh, in the Netherlands. Um, yes. So, would you mind telling us? So, what was your combined score? What was your combined weight across the three? Uh, my combined score, geez, then I'd have to do the math really because it's <laughs> 115 kilos squat, then we had 67.5 bench and yeah. 152.5 deadlift. And combined, I think that's 325. <laughs> I don't know, I don't have a calculator out, um, but uh. It, it is a lot. And then so for people that want to do it in pounds, you need to multiply it by 2.2. And that'll give you the weight in pounds. And I think we can conclude barely can lift a lot of weight. Um, and so this is really cool. I didn't know that you were so actively into it. And um, so what are you doing now? So you had the big national competition two weeks ago. Are you back in a training cycle now training for something else? Well, actually, I started to focus a bit more on Olympic weightlifting now because I just wanted oh, to explore yeah. what it is. So, yeah, I'm now into snatches and uh, clean and jerks. But that's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I really like it. So I don't know if it's temporary yet, but <laughs> I'm still a powerlifter, but now doing a sidetrack into weightlifting. And oh, I'm the wow, proud so owner cool. of a fully equipped gym at home as well, both powerlifting uh, fully equipped and weightlifting now it's it's like a giant hobby it's like getting out of control a bit like i understand i'm super fortunate to have a very well-equipped gym across the street it's it's basically unheard of i'd have to be like absurdly wealthy to have a fully equipped gym in my apartment in new york that would be like 
incredible. Maybe yeah, that's something to aspire that, to. <laughs> that it's an expensive hobby to have your own gym. Yeah. Totally um, and so, yeah, so Olympic weightlifting, that's the one I'm much more familiar with. Uh, and I've only done it once. I competed once. And I was okay for my, I was okay if you, I lift a fair bit if you don't consider weight or gender. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that, that's kind of important <laughs> at these competitions. <laughs> I know. So once you put me in my weight class, it's not so impressive. But uh, for the audience, there's only two movements in Olympic weightlifting. There's, Virla already mentioned them, the clean, the jerk, and the snatch. Um, but they are, they're more technical. I hope you don't mind me saying. Uh, yes, it's very true. It's much uh, more difficult, really, because powerlifting is more brute force. And weightlifting is like, if you're like one inch off, then you miss your attempt. It's a very different world. But that yep. makes it kind of a challenge. It is. It's, it's nice. It's like there's so much more on positioning and timing, accuracy. Um, I enjoy it a lot. Uh, yeah, me too. And yes, people can probably look up videos to get a sense of how a clean and a jerk and a snatch works, but it's the same. So it's the same barbell that you use for all the powerlifting movements. Although, I mean, I guess technically speaking, you could have a different, you might even, given that you have, you're such a well-equipped gym, you probably have two different barbells. <laughs> yes, I have a women's weightlifting bar and a powerlifting bar because the weight mm. differs eh, between the bars. The Very important. Wait, yes. what? Women, women do have a lighter bar than men. Oh, so yeah, the standard yeah. bar is 20 kilos, but for women it's 15. So I have right, two right, bars, right. Yeah. yeah. But you have, but you also have two 15 kilo bars. You have one for powerlifting and one for Olympic. No, powerlifting is 20. It's always 20. Oh, it's always 20. Oh, yes. interesting. I didn't know that. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, so... In terms of the idea, though, the barbell, it looks, I mean, it's a barbell. Uh, at a distance, it would look the same, whether it's powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting. And so with a snatch, you have to, in a single movement, get the bar overhead. So it's on the ground, like with a deadlift, but then you, in a single movement, boom, it's over your head, and you have to stand up with it over your head and show control. And the clean and jerk, you get to do it in two. So up to your chest and then overhead. And so you can do more weight that way. Anyway. So do, do you have a specific date in mind for that? For like your first competition? Well, perhaps in October, but um, yeah, it depends. I, I really want to get a good snatch and then I might be ready to get to the platform. But I'm not there yet, I can tell you. <laughs> My snatch is like basically a very segmented lift at this point in time <laughs> it's not smooth at all uh, but yeah we learn every day right you yeah. can only get better well very exciting i look forward to watching the journey i'm going to say that again because i just hit my mic with my hand i don't know if that worked well very exciting i'm looking forward to seeing how this journey unfolds for you and i do hope that you stay in touch not just about data science but about this as well um it's really mm -hmm. cool and i hope do you ever post about your uh, weightlifting stuff on LinkedIn? Not on LinkedIn, no, I, I keep that separate, but I do have a very dedicated Instagram account to all my lifting. Oh, okay. Well, maybe you can share that at the end as well, uh, in addition to your uh, LinkedIn details. All right, but let's, let's get away from Instagram-style chat.
to LinkedIn style chats. So yeah, so we know each other uh, from LinkedIn. And so yeah, you kind of came to my attention because of this uh, powerlifting post that I made. Um, and then shortly thereafter, I noticed that on June 22nd, you gave a talk for the R ladies of Amsterdam. And the talk was on R in production. And my mind was blown. I'm constantly on this show and in life in general saying, I like R. And I genuinely do. I was a, I was a R user for years before I started using Python. And so a lot of my statistical programming um, knowledge came from using R. And I really like it. But in the last five, six years, I don't use it very much because I started working at a startup where we're putting models into production. And I've always had this idea in my head. And I don't think I'm the only one who goes around um, spreading this propaganda. But you have this, there's this idea in the data science community that especially if you're looking at putting models into production, you need to be using Python. And well, today you're going to tell us why I'm wrong. Yes, definitely. Because you said that you worked at a startup and needed to put models into production, and that's why you didn't use R. But let me tell you, I'm working in a startup as well, and we have models in production, but we are using R. So it definitely is possible. We're running a whole business on R, basically. So this stigma go. around R is only for academics and it's only for statistical programming and it's only good enough for quick prototyping. It's not true. Hmm. And well, okay. that's what I told at the talk. So let's, let's dig into that in a second. But first, give us a little bit of context about your startup. So it's called Analytic Health. It looks to me like it's headquartered in London. Um, yes, correct. But yeah, so tell us a bit about what the company does, what you do there. Yeah, so I'm managing director and head of data science at Analytic Health. And together with my business partner, Greg Mills, and our head of operations, Jana, we develop web applications for the healthcare sector. And what we do is we gather and we analyze healthcare data in order to retrieve value from the data. Because we believe that we can accelerate innovation in healthcare by um, getting insights from these data. And we gather data from the United Kingdom, uh, healthcare data on a daily basis. And we also use internal sales data from pharmaceutical companies. And we build web apps around that. And those web apps are made in R, as well as the data gathering process and the modeling process. Wow. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science. Yes, our online membership platform for transitioning into data science and the namesake of the podcast itself. In the Super Data Science platform, we recently launched our new 99-day data scientist study plan, a cheat sheet with week-by-week -week instructions to get you started as a data scientist in as few as 15 weeks. Each week, you complete tasks in four categories. The first is super data science courses to become familiar with the technical foundations of data science. The second is hands-on projects to fill up your portfolio and showcase your knowledge in your job applications. The third is a career toolkit with actions to help you stand out in your job hunting. And the fourth is additional curated resources such as articles, books, and podcasts to expand your learning and stay up to date. 
To devise this curriculum, we sat down with some of the best data scientists as well as many of our most successful students and came up with the ideal 99-day data scientist study plan to teach you everything you need to succeed so you can skip the planning and simply focus on learning. We believe the program can be completed in 99 days and we challenge you to do it. Are you ready? Go to superdatascience.com challenge, download the 99-day study plan and use it with your Super Data Science subscription to get started as a data scientist in under 100 days. And now let's get back to this amazing episode. Okay, so it sounds like a really cool company and it sounds like you have an amazing job there. Um, yes. So what kinds of products do you have? So this, I like this idea of retrieving value from healthcare data and it's cool that you have these different kinds of sources. So I guess if, if, if it's public data coming from the UK, is it from the National Health Service, from the NHS? Yes, it's from the NHS, mainly, yeah. Also from then, uh, other sources, but mainly from the NHS. And then also... But imagine you have like 10 different data sources from the NHS, which is great, but you need to access them all separately. And that's the issue. Getting that data from all the different data sources and maintaining that is a full-time job. And right. what we do is we basically do that. We gather it, we combine it, we clean it, we validate it, bring it all together, and then put it into a web application to easily access and to analyze. So we're basically doing all this pre-work so that other people don't have to, and that they can focus on what really matters, namely doing innovative things with those data instead of gathering it. Very cool. So this kind of reminds me a little bit in a recent episode, in episode 485 with Doug Eisenstein, Doug was on the show talking about uh, engineering data pipelines for the financial sector. So there he was talking about, um, in that case, it was people, investment managers uh, working at fi big financial companies. They, in order to be able to make good investment decisions, they need to have many different data sources. Um, it could be you know, dozens of data sources that need to be integrated together um, so that you kind of have this one big perspective of the situation, in that case, like the economic situation, um, so that you can make the right trading decision. So it sounds like what analytic health provides is an analogous kind of system in healthcare, where you have many data sources together, you engineer systems so that those data sources become integrated, and then you create, I guess, like a user interface or an API so that... Um, users, who's, who's a typical end user of this product can, can make better decisions? Typical end users work in pharmaceutical companies and are sales managers or brand managers who are trying to optimize their supply chain processes, for example. Nice. That is super cool. So yeah. So tell us about how R uh, can do all of these aspects for us. So I guess <laughs> the first piece is going to be data gathering, so uh, uh, ETL processes, for example, um, yes. extraction, transformation, loading of data. Um, how can we do that uh, at a production type scale in R? Yeah, so imagine that we have all these data sources and they are coming from all kinds of different things. It, not, it are not Excel files that you're getting everywhere. So some data comes from PDF documents, other data comes from emails, other data comes from API endpoints. Um, and all this data comes available at different times. For example, some data is released on a monthly basis and other data is released on a weekly basis. 
um, or bi-weekly or daily. So you need an automated process to basically check all those data sources. And whenever there's new data, the process needs to kick off and then start gathering it, cleaning it, merging it, and sending it back to the database, uh, our data warehouse, um, where we then can, well, look into the data warehouse to gather data. And a key point here is that you need to have these processes scheduled. So you need a way um, where you can schedule all your ETL processes to kick off at appropriate times. And we do that with um, an R extension, which is called Cron R. And that's basically a very simple R native tool that allows you to schedule um, scripts um, or in our case, whole projects um, to run up, to kick off automatically um, so that it can start the data gathering process when um, it's time to do that. And this Cron R tool is very simple to use because it has even has a, a RStudio interface. So it's basically a click and play solution. And for the people who know Linux, it's obviously uh, working on Linux because it makes use of the prompt app uh, functionality there. So that's a great tool where you can actually automatically, especially if you have a server, which is always on, where you can automatically schedule all your R jobs and also manage them. Vula, that uh, the tool that you've mentioned, this sounds really interesting. I haven't heard about it before. So uh, it sounds, yeah, you mentioned how it, it builds upon CronTab, which is a familiar tool for a lot of people who are scheduling processes on Linux systems. Um, but this tool is called Chrome. Is that right? Like a Google, it's the same as like Google Chrome, like the kind of metal? No, Chrome. Uh, oh, it is Chrome. Oh, yeah. so it's Cron R. Oh, see, just, just like CronTab. Okay, okay, okay. Yes. Very good. Just to give you an idea of uh, about how many processes we're talking, we have 32 ETL processes running daily. So how are you going then to manage all these processes? Because obviously um, we can't look at R all day and making sure that everything kicked off because life happens, errors prevail, um, stuff goes wrong. So one thing that we also do to manage the process is to monitor it. And we have a beautiful data pipeline report coming into our mailbox every day, telling us exactly what processes did kick off, at what time, if there were errors, if there were other noteworthy messages, also done with R. So what we use for this is Blastula, which is a package which can help you send emails. Um, but you can schedule those. Um, and we use RStudio Connect here to um, deploy it on. So what we do here is we schedule this data pipeline can, report. Can I interrupt you for one second again, just to get that the name of this tool? Yeah. So plus two lang, like Blastula. The... So it's B L A S T U U L A. Blastula. Ah, okay, I gotcha. And so that's yeah, it's kind of this idea of like maybe like an email blast. I don't know. Uh, whatever. We don't need to figure yes. out where this name came from. It oh, is, it is. It is. And it makes beautiful um, emails. So these are not the emails that you expect from R, like these tacky emails with only text, which look awful. No, these are beautiful HTML emails with beautiful tables and graphs. So wow. this is coming into our mailbox every day at eight o'clock, which we discuss then at our daily standup to see, okay, all of these processes, did they run accordingly? And I think that is key when you are managing what in whatever language even, things in production, you need to monitor it. 
because you can set up all these processes, do it on a production scale, have many processes running on servers, one, two, three, four, five servers, but you need a way to actually make sure that everything runs accordingly. So monitoring is key here. And um, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that that stuff is also something that you can do with R, for example, with these email reports and with organized projects. Yeah, I didn't know that. Okay, so before I interrupted you, after you finished talking about Blastula, uh, you were then talking about another tool that also sounded really cool for the same kind of uh, data quality process checking kind of thing. Yeah, so um, the question is, how are you going to schedule these email reports? And there, Ooh, yeah. we already touched a bit upon how you're going to deploy these things. And what we use for deployment is RStudio Connect, which is uh, basically an enterprise level tool, which um, you can purchase from RStudio, which helps you to deploy your shiny apps, your email reports, markdown reports, um, APIs even. Um, and that's what we use for deploying everything that we have. Nice. So let's talk a bit more about that. So I guess our kind of maybe model deployment is kind of the last step. Maybe before we get to model deployment, we need to be talking about model development in general. I guess you use RStudio as your yes. kind of main tool. <laughs> yes, we use uh, RStudio Server, uh, actually Server Pro version, um, which we have running on a server as well and where we have multiple accounts on so that we can work together on uh, the same projects. And um, yeah, we develop there. So we develop our apps there, we develop our APIs there, and we develop our markdown reports there. And um, one important thing that might be uh, noteworthy to mention is that in production, it's very important that you separate your development processes from your production processes, right? You don't want to do development work where your production is uh, and the other way around. So how we solve that at a relatively small company is just to set up two servers. On one server, we have RStudio server running. On the other one, we have RStudio Connect. And um, those are basically our development and production servers. So whenever we develop something on our development server with RStudio server, we then push it to RStudio Connect, and that's our live environment. And on RStudio Connect is also the place where our customers go to to access our web applications. Nice. So I guess RStudio Connect might also make it easy then. It sounds like if RStudio Connect allows you to deploy uh, shiny user interfaces, so maybe I could, I could do it a little bit, but you can do it better than me. Tell us a bit about RShiny. So RShiny is the tool to make web applications of your R code. And um, RShiny is basically very simple. You create a user interface and you create a server part. And with the user interface, you obviously make the front end of your application. And with the server part, you will do the back end logic. And it's very easy to spin up applications, but I also would like to correct something or talk in favor of Shiny, because Shiny is often said, okay, Shiny is like this dashboarding tool. You can make great dashboards with it. Yeah, sure, you can make dashboards, but you can make fully professional applications as well. And I think that if you're saying that Shiny is only for dashboards, then you didn't understand it correctly, because you can do so much more with Shiny than just the dashboard tool. 
you can really make applications that you can distinguish from view and note applications, for example. So I develop in other languages as well. We also have few applications, which is a JavaScript framework. It's not different, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's definitely, well, I can safely say that you can have an app in production that is running purely on R because your clients won't notice. In fact, your end users don't care with which tech stack something was developed. As no, long as it they works. really don't. And yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm probably the same kind of person who goes around saying not only uh, that we should only be using Python for production, but also that if we're going to use R Shiny, it's for dashboards. That's that's definitely something that I parrot. Um, yes. So you should yikes. never do that again. <laughs> no, I won't. That's why. I, that's why I wanted to have you on as a guest. And yeah, this is you're changing my life here. Now I can go back to R, which is all I wanted to be doing all along. Um, and I think a really cool idea here, based on my experience, I've built R Shiny apps, <laughs> mostly dashboards, but um, uh, you know. I've done that and I don't I don't have expertise in HTML, CSS, JavaScript, really. Like I'm I'm quite bad at those things. And I can make a fully functional um, application in R Shiny. So I think that there's probably a really cool opportunity here for a lot of listeners to now, with the conversation that we've had today, uh, if they have some experience with R, or even if they don't. So if they are doing their data science with another tool like Python, um, but they want to be making apps, now it seems like the most obvious thing to be doing is learning R and using R Shiny to develop and deploy those apps because the way that you think about your code is going to be a lot more similar to how you do it in Python than you know, relative to, say, learning JavaScript or HTML and CSS. Um, yes. So that's really cool. There's a huge opportunity and here for... The beauty of, because a web application is exactly those three things, right? HTML, CSS, JavaScript. The beauty about Shiny is it has like all these amazing wrappers around JavaScript libraries, which make all the cool JavaScript stuff easily available for you as an R user. And that's the thing that I love about um, Shiny. The development is, is so um, amazing there. So every day new stuff comes out, which allow you to make these awesome applications. And in order to use the, the fundamentals of Shiny, you don't need to know JavaScript yourself because you have these nice wrappers around it. And obviously, if you want to do more customization later on, it would be handy if you know JavaScript because um, then you can do even more amazing stuff. But in the basis, you don't need it to get started. I started somewhere as well, like just building a Shiny app while I had a bit of our experience, you know. And yeah, you learn along the way, but that's with, with everything, with every tool that you choose. Nice, super cool, Virla. This is really exciting. I think that, yeah, not only for me, but for a lot of listeners, I think this has been a podcast that has potentially changed their life. Not only will people be doing more powerlifting and more Olympic lifting, but they'll also <laughs> be using R in production. Um, so, so are there, are there any other particular, uh, tools in your ecosystem that you recommend we check out either for model development or deployment? I think we've talked a little bit more about ETL already, but for development, we've focused mostly on our studio server, 
maybe there are particular um, packages that you use a lot that you highly recommend in R? Yeah, what I would recommend for Shiny apps is checking out the Golem package. The Golem package is basically a nice um, well, framework even or way to organize your, pro your project um, in order to make it a prediction grade Shiny application. So it provides you basically with the infrastructure you need to set up a professional application, which is also very scalable. So I would definitely recommend to check out the Golem package here. How do you, and, how do you spell that? That's like the Lord of the Rings Golem? Yes. G-O-L-U-M? Yeah. Yeah, only E-M at the end. But yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great tool. And... Yeah, as I said, check out the email reports, Blastula, so that you can keep yourself updated about what's happening in your processes. And one other tip I can give you when you are setting up R in production is to um, make sure that when you set up a new project that you choose a structure and make it the same across all projects. You can imagine with us having 32 processes running, it would be a pain if we go from one project to the other, that if the project looks totally different every time. So make sure that you have a base structure. Um, you can even make a package out of it um, on your own that can easily create a structure for you. But make sure that you do it standardized. Cool. Um, how about the Tidyverse? Are you, are you a Tidyverse uh, fan or, or not? I'm a Tidyverse lover. Yeah, okay. I am a Tidyverse lover, yeah. But the thing is, uh, my business partner with whom I work very closely, obviously, is not. No. <laughs> <He's a data. laughs> oh, it's awful. It's a it's a data table um, lover basically. So um, uh, we have this clash of data table and uh, and tibbles. Supplier. Yeah. Yeah. But did oh, you know there is a great package as well, which is DTPlier, which basically combines the plier and data table together. I did not know that. So then um, you can make use of the advantages of the speed of data table because that's why I have to be honest here. In most of our shiny yeah. apps, we use data table because of its speed and we want our apps to be as fast as possible. So we prefer oh. data table over dplyr. Um, oh. But the dplyr syntax is just beautiful. <laughs> so what you can do now with this package dplyr, you can uh, actually use the dplyr syntax, but under the hood, it uses data table. And you have a bit of overhead there, so it's not as fast as using pure data table, but it's considerably faster than dplyr alone. Yeah, and so I guess we should back up a little bit and let audience listeners know uh, a, a little bit more about the Tidyverse. So the Tidyverse, I think it was created by Hadley Wickham. He's definitely the biggest figure in the space. So Hadley Wickham was actually on the Super Data Science Show last year, so episode 337. And Hadley Wickham works at R Studio, which is this, which is the biggest player in um, in commercial development of R uh, software. But they also they open source tons and tons and tons of things. And so, you know, we've been talking about R Studio Server and R Studio Connect, which are uh, tools that you can purchase from our studio, but there's a free IDE, which I've used for over a decade. That is, I think the leading IDE. Um, so, uh, you know, for just for developing within 
uh, in our environment. Um, same thing, R Shiny, which we've talked about a lot, is free. It's completely open source. And dplyr, uh, so dplyr is a part of this suite of R packages in the tidyverse. And the reason why it's called the tidyverse is because it's all of these packages are based on the idea of having tidy data, which is a particular way of structuring your data. And then it allows you to pipe functions. So you can, you can take a given data frame, what's called a tibble in the tidyverse, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And then you, so you take like a noun, you take an object, and then you can pass it through a series of functions, a, a, a series of verbs. And so you can form a series of a pipeline, basically, of operations. And it is such an intuitive and easy way to write code. I absolutely love it. And I must admit, Virlo, that it is something that I miss in Python. Yeah, I can imagine. It's awesome. Okay, Virla, so this is all super cool if we are building a user interface, something that somebody can click and point around with. But what if our production application needs to be an API that people can program against and make calls against? Is there a tool that we can use in that case? Yes, definitely. You have the plumber package in R. And the plumber ah. package in R allows you to turn your R code into an API endpoint. So your models uh, can go directly in there. And the nice thing about that is, is that it's taking like three extra lines of code to turn your script into an API. And then you can deploy it basically anywhere. You can dockerize it and put it somewhere uh, into AWS or on Azure, or you can deploy it to RStudio Connect. And that's a great way to actually productionize your R code. Cool, well, we've learned a lot. Uh, you've completely changed my perspective on R as a tool we could be using in, in production. I can't wait to check out Blastula, Cron R, um, DTplyr, um, and I'm sure there's lots of audience members out there who can't wait to get started as well. So do you happen to have a book recommendation that might be related to R? You might not, it might be unrelated to R. It doesn't matter either way, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, can, I, I can I, give a recommendation for R and not for R, but um, for R, I would definitely recommend uh, JavaScript uh, for R by John Kuhne, that is. Um, wow. It's a great book on how you can use uh, JavaScript. Um, you can access it online, so it's uh, pretty cool. And a non-related R book, I would say The Art of Thinking Clearly by Rolf Dobelli. Um, it's mm. like, it has these very short chapters, which you can read in like two minutes. And it will give you like fresh insights on well, life in general, which is also very useful to use in a business, for example. That sounds cool. I want to check that out. Um, that sounds like so something with such short chapters could be ideal for a commute um, or just yes. you know waiting in line for something uh, briefly. <laughs> it sounds like the perfect way to get uh, some extra philosophy in life. Yeah, we at our company, we have a weekly meeting where we discuss each of us one chapter of this book and talk about it and what it can mean for the business. Just wow. to do something else than, you know, programming and getting involved in day-to-day -day business. We step outside once per week and talk about these general things. Beautiful. All right. I'm looking forward to checking that out. 
And then, so I've learned so much from you in this episode. I'm sure lots of people have, and I'm sure lots of listeners are wondering how they can keep up with your latest thoughts, perhaps on the art of thinking clearly, but maybe also on our. Um, so how should people follow you? They can follow me on LinkedIn. I share regularly uh, tips about R and also things that we're doing in, in the business. So uh, give me a follow if you want to know more. Nice. All right. So we will definitely include that in the show notes, making it easy for people to follow you. Virla, this has been such a fun episode. I've really loved having you on. And hopefully we can have you on again sometime soon. Thank you, John. <laughs> Huh, that was a lot of fun, and wow, did Virla ever blow my narrow, Python-centric mind. In today's episode, Virla filled us in on lots of specific tools for using R as your production software language. Specifically, she mentioned the R Tidyverse as a tidy way to manage your data and data operations, particularly dplyr, for piping operations into each other sequentially and intuitively. She told us about dtplyr for obtaining dplyr style piping with computational efficiency that is near R's data tables. She talked about cron R for scheduling processes to run automatically, Blastula for beautiful automated emails, R Studio Server for model development in the cloud, R Shiny for designing user interfaces of any ilk, R Studio Connect for deploying R Shiny apps and Golem for professional-grade scalability of those shiny apps. And finally, she told us about R Plumber for creating API endpoints. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, such as the list of R packages that I just rifled through, and the URL for Virla's LinkedIn profile, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com 491. That's superdatascience.com slash 491. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel where we have a video version of this episode. To let me know your thoughts on the episode, please do feel welcome to add me on LinkedIn or on Twitter and then tag me in a post to let me know your thoughts on this episode. Your feedback is invaluable for figuring out what topics we should cover next. Since this is a free podcast, if you're looking for a free way to help me out, I'd be very grateful if you left a rating of my book, Deep Learning Illustrated on Amazon or Goodreads, gave some videos on my YouTube channel a thumbs up, or subscribe to my free content-rich newsletter on johncrone.com. To support the super data science company that kindly funds the management, editing, and production of this podcast without any annoying third-party ads, you could create a free login to their learning platform at superdatascience.com, you could check out the 99 days to your first data science job challenge at superdatascience.com challenge, or you could consider buying a usually pretty darn cheap Udemy course published by Ligency, an affiliate of Super Data Science, such as my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course. All right. Thanks to Ivana, Jaime, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another amazing episode today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon. <laughs>